Hey, this is Dave Infante. Welcome to Vine Pairs Tap Lines, a weekly interview series with brewing icons, industry insiders, and outspoken experts about the United States' most beloved and best-selling beers. It's modern American history, one beer at a time. The boys are back in town, Tap Lines listener. Whereas the boys are me, and town is this podcast. Hmm, bit of a clunky opener there, huh? Well, no time to dwell on it because we've got blue ribbon business to attend to, and lots of it. This is the second installment of a Taplines two-parter about the early days of PBR's cultural and commercial renaissance at the beginning of the 21st century. Our guest for these bifurcated back-to-back episodes is Neil Stewart, a former Pabst Brewing Company marketer who spent the first half of the aughts working on the firm's flagship. If you haven't yet, you may want to go back and check out that episode first, which was published directly prior to this one. In it, Neil recounts Paps the Company's Y2K era disarray and Paps the Beer's devastating slide into near irrelevance, which hit its nadir right around that same time. PBR's volume would bottom out in 2001, but in San Antonio, Neil and Co. would soon spot a mysterious light on the horizon shining out from the Pacific Northwest. Following it would lead the formerly flailing beer to previously unfathomable heights, not just in terms of much-needed revenue, but also the sort of priceless cultural cachet that would turn its unmistakable red, white, and blue ribbon branding into an indelible emblem of America's 2000 zeitgeist. Indelible emblem. Say that three times fast. (laughs) We left Neil in the aftermath of PBR's successful low-budget sponsorship of a bike messenger race in Portland, Oregon at the end of episode one. We cue part two with this Marabun legacy brand showing improbable signs of life and soon to receive a coveted cosign from a tough marketing critic in the paper of record. It's Neil Stewart. It's PBR. It's writing the Blue Ribbon brand Bible. And it's all right here right now on Von Pairs Tablines. And from there, and by the way, that bike messenger race introduced me to several people from other markets. Oh, no So kidding. there were people from San Francisco. There Who were people flew from, in for it or whatever. From yeah. C- they didn't fly in, but they drove in. <laughs> yeah, right. What um, am I talking yeah. about? Uh, but they, they came in for the event. And then that like gave me a bunch of contacts in other markets. And they, they weren't just bike messengers. They were people that were into like the music community. They were into the tattoo scene. Um, they were into like the, you know, indie uh, film community. And all of a sudden I started kind of like building this network of people who would contact me and ask me to sponsor their event. And I would do it by just giving them beer. So I didn't do many cash sponsorships, but I gave away a ton of beer. Mm-hmm. And I found that kind of like just giving them beer and letting that be part of the event on their terms is what worked. And it was all about just kind of replicating that as much as I could. Eventually, as I did that for like two years and I traveled all over the country and tried to go to as many of these events as I could, because I knew that that would help me build my network of contacts. Eventually we ended up um, hiring people who were planted in specific markets that really just kind of carried out that plan. So we called it the field marketing rep plan and we launched it in six markets and we found, and we obviously measured the results. That's what really kind of like brought the PBR trend to other markets like Atlanta, like a Chicago, Kansas City, and so forth. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. When you were meeting these people at the the you know at first at the the bike race, and then you know you kind of sort of connected with them there. Were they 
the folks from outside of Portland, were they drinking PBR at all? Like, was how much awareness did they have for the brand when you first, like, came across them? Um, that's a great question. I don't know specifically. I can kind of just, like, try to reflect on what it felt like. Yeah. A, yeah. my recollection is that everyone knew PBR. So awareness was not an issue. Yeah, good point. Um, yeah. It was, it was, there was their perception of the brand. And I think that when they saw it, in an environment where it was not only socially acceptable, but like socially encouraged. And it was, it was part of, and, and they saw it as a, as a very natural connection to their subculture. I think it just like clicked with them. It just made sense. So yeah, you know, like people definitely embraced it. It was not the situation of like them going to a party and being like, what PBR, like who brought the cheap beer? Right. It just kind of intuitively made sense to them. Gotcha. Whereabouts, zoom out for a second, we mentioned sort of like the idea that hipsterism and like the, the premise of a hipster really had not yet yeah. coalesced. Like that's not something that's in the lexicon, not in the mainstream at least. And really yeah. that's kind of taking shape. Can you think back to the extent that you're able to, in that period, what was like the status of that, you know, quote unquote subculture? Like were people... Was there any self-identifying in those circles as hipsters? Was, you know, like, were people talking about, I mean, you know, Williamsburg is like the next, was, of course, yeah. would go on to become a hotbed. Williamsburg mm -hmm. and Brooklyn would become a hotbed of what we would come to think of as hipsterism. Like, was that scene sort of developed at that point? Like, give us a little bit of context about, like, where that subculture was vis-a-vis, -vis, you know, PBR's development. Yeah, I want to say probably around 2004. So we're probably, like maybe 2005, there was a book that came out and it was just like a little like gimmicky book and it was called the hipster handbook. Mm -hmm. And it like, it was almost like a how to guide of how to be a hipster. Sure. Sure. And, um, and, and some of the content in there was like completely made up. I think the author of that book <laughs> was like just trying to like engineer uh culture. So PBR was very closely tied to being a hipster. So it was mentioned in the hipster handbook. You know, this was pre-social media, but there used to be things that people would email around and it was like the hipster bingo card and like PBR was on there. Um, so by, you know, 2004, 2005, people are kind of calling all of these consumers together hipsters, but we always thought about it as like individual subcultures so, you know, the indie music community, and you could break that into many different subcultures ranging from like jam bands to indie rockers sure. to emerging hip hop or whatever. Um, you know, they were different than the tattoo community who was different than the Vespa scooter rally community. So we kind of treated all of these these subcultures as individuals and we let them kind of define what the brand meant to them. And I'll, I'll give you a story I, I, there was a time I was in San Francisco um, when things had kind of started to happen. And again, I was at a bike messenger bar. I don't think bike messenger bars exist anymore, but it did in San Francisco in like yeah. 2003. Um, and I was there and I had like a, a, a bike messenger bag by this time. Like I was fully indoctrinated right. into the culture, right. <laughs> but I, I had like a Chrome, uh, a Chrome is a brand, brand? of bike messenger. Yeah, sure. yep. yeah. Yep. Yeah. And they started as a bike messenger bag brand. Yep. And so I had that and I had a bunch of swag in my, my bag and I went up to the bartender, like I'd been out in the market with our distributor person all day. And I just like went to this bar to kind of chill out. I go up to the bartender. When I walk in, I give them my business card. I'm like, Hey, I'm with Pabst. Thank you for your business. 
please don't tell anybody I work for Pabst. And of course she did exactly what I wanted her to do, which was tell everyone the PBR guy is here. And like all these people start coming up to me and like asking me for stuff. And I'm like, sure. And I start handing out hats and belt buckles and everything. And, you know, again, the same kind of process repeated. Someone came up to me, hey, would you be interested in sponsoring my Vespa scooter rally or my skateboard event or whatever? And I was like, yeah, sure. So like at that point in time, like the hipster community knew that PBR was a part of it. And PBR knew that the hipster community was a essential part of the brand. But I did kind of work hard to not overly acknowledge that through like our normal communication, like POS, or like we built our first website around that time. I, and it's not like it had like a bunch of hipsters on it. It was like, I literally designed the website. I wanted it to look like, you know, like the brand manager was like 68 years old and had been at Pabst for 42 years. Right. <laughs> right. Yeah. Still flying under the radar and, and sort of like not fully acknowledging that you're now aware, you know, they, you know, that they know that, you know, type of thing. Yeah. Yeah. Gotcha. Yeah. I actually just thought of something. Uh, give me a second. Yeah. Uh, take your time. I just remembered that I, um, I brought this into work a couple days ago cause I, I just moved. And, uh, so I was cleaning out some boxes and I found this and I brought this in to show my team here, but, um, I want to say this is from 2004. Okay. We had just, okay. No. Wow. 2002. Okay. So this is a book that I put together and this was like the how to market PBR book. Let me read this off to anyone who's not watching and is listening to this. We've got the PBR PhD. It's, it says Pabst Blue Ribbon Beer on the front. All right. So Neil, what are we, what are you holding in your hand here? Yeah. So this is uh, like a little zine. Yeah. It was uh, made like a little comic book. It's got like a bunch of like old retro kind yeah, of advertising collateral. from PBR. Yep. And, yep. yep. Like, and then, there's that belt buckle that I was talking about, a very yep. popular item at the time. And um, I had read some like marketing books at that time and like just tried to like explain how this works. So there's a part in here. Let's see. Uh, okay. So we called it buzz marketing at the time. <laughs> um, <laughs> and let's see here. I'm like going down memory very lane. Quaint. But yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Uh, so it's like why buzz marketing tactics work for Paps Blue Ribbon? Three reasons. I might embarrass myself on this. Um, <laughs> the first one says skepticism, and we called the people social influencers. Um, That's it before its social... time. Yeah, the, yeah, people weren't talking about influencers in the same way back then. Yeah, yeah. It says the social influencers of the Gen X and Gen Y generation um, don't trust big corporate America. They root for the little guy, the underdog. These consumers have always thought in the back of their mind they want to make money off of me. The second one was noise. Uh, young adult consumers can't hear mainstream advertising. They become numb to mo most forms of advertising um, because they've been brought up in the age of advertising. And then three is connectivity. This is the, it literally says this, this is the internet age. There are new tools for sharing information, which allow consumers to communicate with people they know and complete strangers. Moving forward, word of mouth will become more important and broadcasted to the world via email uh, in, and in new ways, like consumers publishing their own websites, people will become people will be connected to opinions more than broadcast messages. Okay, <laughs> so you're kind of you're in the neighbor, you're in the ballpark. None of that's wrong. 
You know, yeah. like, yeah, there's some, yeah. there's a there there. Okay. So, so you hand out this book and this is a good uh, opportunity to ask this. What's the team look like at this point, Neil? Like what, you know, yeah. like obviously you were saying, you know, there was a lack of investment in the brands for a while. What's the, what is your ability to, as a team, like get out? Like how, how many boots on the ground does Paps have behind PBR? Our sales team was probably around um, 70 or 80 people across the country. At that time mm. in the marketing department, I want to say it was probably like no more than 15. Wow. And okay. so we did rely on, you know, a, kind of a mix of freelance graphic designers and agencies to help us. You know, PBR, while I was there, never really had like an agency of record. Mm -hmm. We had an agency that did a ton of graphic design for us, did a lot of like sales promotion design like retail shopper marketing, if you even want to call it that, like that might even be a stretch. Um, but they did a lot of great design work for us. They designed this book. We did have an agency when we, when we hired the field marketing reps, we had an agency that we hired to hire those people because um, we didn't want to take on the additional headcount. Mm -hmm. So yeah, we, we, we would outsource that. But yeah, when I was like senior brand manager, it's not like I had a brand manager reporting into me. You know, I reported into the VP of marketing. I was like the one man PBR team. We had a guy who, you know, managed Lone Star, guy that managed old Milwaukee, guy that managed, you know, uh, Colt 45. The team probably, when I got to marketing director, I had, a, then I had like all of the brand managers reporting into me. But um, yeah, it was never big. Yeah. Pretty bare bones operation, especially yeah. sounds like earlier in the tenure. All right. So when does it first start really clicking? I mean, you mentioned, you know, sort of this experience when you go to the bar in uh, San Francisco and you, you know, hand the business card off to the bartender and you, you see people start to kind of like, oh, there's a Paps guy in the room. I want to go chat this guy up because this is something I drink. You're starting to see some returns there. Was there a moment that you realized like, oh shit, like this is this thing really has like bona fide momentum. It's going to keep rolling whether or not we're pushing it. Like, tell me a little bit about whether, you know, where that inflection point was as you remember it. Yeah. I mean, for me personally, I can tell you pretty much the exact date. I was in Vegas for my birthday in 2003. My, my birthday is in June. And that weekend, a story in the New York Times magazine was published it was written by a guy named Rob Walker, mm -hmm. who is a pretty famous kind of marketing and business journalist. And uh, he had previously written a pretty scathing story about Red Bull and how there's kind of like a lot of deception around their marketing tactics. And he decided that he wanted to write a story about PBR. So he had been interviewing me for that story. And if you recall, there was a lot of um, controversy for the New York Times around that time because... Uh, they weren't doing proper fact checking. Do you remember mm. that whole? Yeah, uproar? yeah. Someone got there was like a big scandal over it. If I'm not mistaken, yeah. yeah. I'm blanking yeah. on the guy's name. Jason Blair, maybe. Um, I think yeah, was I'm the one. Sure. Yeah, I think that was the high profile because yeah. it wasn't a uh, glass. That was he was at New Republic, and that was in that Shattered Glass was the movie that came out of that. Anyway, yeah. that's a tangent. But yes, right. So yeah. the, the New York <laughs> Times is is caught up in a bit of a uh, uh, scandal. Okay. Yeah. So Rob Walker had interviewed me for this story and, and PB or Pabst Brewing Company in general 
was very anti-PR and media relations because they had just been dragged through the mud for so many years. Yeah. Specifically back in like 1996 when they closed the brewery in Milwaukee. Like whoever was managing PR for Pabst at that time, like didn't manage that very well. I mean, yeah. it's hard when you close, right. close a brewery. There's it's no good easy. stories to tell. Yeah, yeah right. Yeah, yeah. yeah, I've been part of that. Yeah. But um, so we kind of had this like policy that we didn't talk to the media. Somehow, some way I convinced... Our CEO, I was like, hey, I think we should do this. Like being them covering us in the New York Times is going to be huge. And it was like, well, no, this guy, Rob Walker, he wrote this like scathing story about Red Bull. Sure. Like, what's he going to do to us? And so somehow I became like the spokesperson for Pabst. Like they sent me out to talk to this guy. And uh, so it was, it was my birthday weekend when that story was in the New York Times magazine. And uh, the title of it was The Marketing of No Marketing. And so I remember walking downstairs to pick up the Sunday edition of the New York Times magazine and like opening that up and like seeing the story about PBR, which ended up being really positive, positive for the yeah, brand. I've read that article. Yeah, yeah. yeah. No, yeah. it's, it's a, I mean, it was part of our research packet as I was headed into this episode. That article was sort of the, you know, a flag early on. It was like, man, it's made it to the mainstream in 2003. It's in the New York Times and it's positive. Yeah. 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 And then that, Story propelled us to get just a ton of earned media coverage. I mean, like every journalist, you know, that covers business around the country started covering PBR in this like miraculous comeback. Sure. And um, and and so that was like, like we had momentum before that, but then that momentum just built. And so 2004 ended up being a great year for us. And, you know, I think we were the fastest growing beer brand in of the top 40 brands and like we had changed the perception of our distribution network and then PBR had become, and this was the most important thing. And this book was part of like selling it to distributors. There was also a video that I've, I've since lost, but you know, we, we sent out this whole PBR PhD thing to all of our distributors with all of these like news clippings. And once distributors believed that PBR was a Bud Red fighter, you know, because we were mostly in like a Miller Coors independent network. Yep. When they realized that they could take Bud handles off with PBR, game changer. Open season. Yeah. 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 They're just so fine. I mean, and that was the game and to some extent still is. But of course, in 2002, 2003, 2004, I mean, that's the hand-to-hand combat that, you know, anyone who has been in the industry for a long time will get sort of a thousand mile stare mixed with like a wistful gaze you know it's partly fondly recalling it and partly they're shell-shocked from those from those battles but capturing tap Mm -hmm. handles from from your rival i mean was the game right like that was what you you were tasked to go out and do and you better go do it yeah and it was almost like distributors found a brand in their portfolio that was a gift it was like oh my god wait what we can knock here our the whole biggest time. rival yeah. off. It was, it was here. It was there the whole time. Yeah. And like, oh my God, I can do this. And yeah, I mean, and it wasn't just draft. I mean, obviously it was course, cans, bottles, 24 ounce cans, you know, and then it was, you know, uh, you know, account segmentation, like, oh, well, PBR does great in, in music clubs that, you know, where people have really high consumption. So like, we just had this like great selling story behind us. And um, yeah, like from there, you know, I left the company a couple of years later when uh, the the new CEO uh, came in and he moved the company to Chicago. Yeah, yeah. Like, okay, yeah, I'm not going to do that. Um, <laughs> but yeah, you know, so like there were there were kind of different phases of it. It was it was like the early phase of, 
you know, that of like the insight that you talked about of like, oh, wow, like they like us because we're not marketing and because we're a tribute to their grandfather. Kind of the second phase was realizing that that story of like connecting with hipsters could spread geographically. And then telling that story to our distribution network, that was kind of the third phase in, in my tenure there. Yeah. So a couple questions. I'm thinking about the New York Times article in particular, because this seems like a turning point for the brand, but also, I mean, high risk, high reward, right? You described the concern yeah. that, you know, your boss or your the executives at Pabst had at the time with, you know, running into a hit job. Um, the guy who wrote this article had just sort of taken Red Bull to task. So it's, it's alarming, you know, you're like, man, kind of in the lion's den, so to speak. And they had, of course, had a really bad experience about a decade earlier when they left Milwaukee. So, I mean, you had to be worried that this article was not going to be positive. Were you, were you bracing for the worst? <laughs> I mean, that could be a bad yeah. birthday for Neil. <laughs> Yeah. I mean, you know, I think ignorance is bliss. Um, you know, and I was just a young kid back then. Um, but I, the moment I knew that this was really real was when the New York times fact checker called me and I literally had to sit in the CEO's office, like literally at his desk in his chair yeah, and with, with the fact checker on speakerphone, with the CEO in front of me, pacing around the room, writing down things that he wanted me to say and like giving me, you know, <laughs> hand signals of what he wanted me to say. Yeah, like uh, like an <laughs> SNL, like a Saturday Night Live, like a prompter yeah. card. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So, you know, they would be like, so Neil, you said this. And I'd be like, well, I said that. And I'm like watching him and, you know, like, <laughs> so that was a very nerve wracking moment for me. Yeah. Um, so and you can yeah. kind of tell, like being on the other end of a fact check, you can sort of get a little bit of a sense. You can at least understand like, okay, here's what the writer put in of what I gave him. So you can kind of start sussing out maybe a little bit about what the story is going to be, but you still don't know like what the, what the, you know, what the exact angle is going to be. No, you don't. And I, yeah, I, I, now that you say that, yeah, I do kind of remember that where I was like, no, this is going to be good. Yeah, like, yeah. I've had good conversations with Rob yeah. and, you know, I, I trust the process here. Yeah. yeah. Um, but yeah, you know, I, <laughs> I, I don't know. I, like I said, I think I was just a dumb kid at the time and was like totally willing to take the risk. Well, part luck, part skill. So the, the second question I had vis-a-vis -vis the New York times article is at that point, PBR is succeeding on the virtue of its countercultural or its subcultural uh, cachet, right? I mean, you're you're mm -hmm. you have gone and uh, you're you're with the bike messengers who are explicitly telling you that they appreciate that this is not marketed to. They they like that it's not you know it doesn't feel corporate. You you know you're thinking about the website. You're like, well, we better not make this slick. Let's make it look like it's just some old timey you know crappy website. Um, mm -hmm. so you're attuned to this idea. The New York times is indubitably a <laughs> major step into the mainstream, into the establishment, right. And getting a cosign yeah. from the New York times, uh, in that way, it was a positive article. Were you worried mm -hmm. at all that like counterintuitively that might make the uh, PBR lose its countercultural luster at that time? Yeah. I, I, I think there was some concern about it. Um, we made 
conscious choices not to do a lot of things, mm. you know. So what always happens when you get a big story like that, you get you get all of the, like the advertising and sponsorship salespeople coming out of the woodwork trying to sell you everything. Right. And, I, you know, I don't think that we had our strategy articulated in like one document. I mean, like this whole book here does not have like, here is the PBR strategy. It's kind of like spread throughout the the content. Um, I would never allow that today. Uh, (laughs) (laughs) um, So, but I think we, we all kind of knew our guardrails of how far we were willing to go. And, you know, like one of those was like mainstream traditional media, you know, like we had so many, you know, radio sales reps and, you know, television sales reps, like calling us saying, Hey, you know, you need to take advantage of this. And that was like where we drew the line. Everything had to really be kind of person to person marketing, a lot about sampling. You know, we really believed in like passing out swag. So those like those field marketing reps that we hired, I remember they had a budget to work with and the budget was really focused on event sponsorships, uh, swag, free beer, to be used for sponsorships or just like yep. p- what we called product seeding back then. Um, and then, um, yeah. And, and that's about it. Like, and then like bar promotions. Mm-hmm. So we did a lot of things on, on premise. Probably the, the, the thing that I was more worried about than anything was because like there was kind of like the white trash chic thing going on at that time. Oh, interesting. Yeah. You know, yeah. Trucker hats and everything, which we I'm definitely done. did have I'm trucker hats. Yeah, yeah. I remember. Yep. Yeah. Yep. And I was probably more worried about that overwhelming the brand and it becoming just like too ironic rather than something that really connected with people emotionally. So, uh, yes, there were things that happened. There was like bars would have white trash night and PBR would be their brand, but we purposely chose not to like invest in those. If it happened, it happened. There's no way we could right, control you can't that. stop them from but, doing it. Yeah. 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 But we chose not to position the brand that way. Okay, so the article comes out in 2003, June 2003. At this point, PBR sort of hits this next gear that you're describing, and now you've got this this brand that's firing all cylinders or closer to all cylinders. What does the rest of Pabst look like at this time? You've worked on you worked on all the brands to some extent. Like, what yeah. is, is there a halo effect for some of these other brands in the portfolio? What's the rest of the company look like right now? I mean, the rest of the company was not doing well. Yeah. I think our volume was still down year over year. Perhaps was not enough. I mean, the, the losses on Old Milwaukee were massive. You can't offset the that. On the, yeah, yeah, yeah. The cult, uh, well, the, the malt liquor portfolio was was losing volume. Um, we had a couple other little glimmers of hope. So I worked on the Rainier brand, and uh, we launched a really great campaign that that turned that brand around in like 2004, 2005. Uh, Lone Star was was doing well at the time. Uh, we were trying to figure out how to get Lone Star Light going, mm-hmm. but Lone Star there was a little bit of a halo effect for Lone Star specifically in Austin. So Lone okay. Star became the hipster beer in Austin. That didn't happen in Chicago with Old Style. Man, you'd think it would though too. That's crazy because Old Style is just yeah. such an iconic brand. But there's, yeah. there's like such like a weird alchemy to it. You can't really tell which one of these brands was. Actually, that's a good question for you. Like, did you ever try to, I mean, you did so much kind of you and the team and whoever did all this forensic work to kind of understand how this started and, and you know, why, why people care. Did you ever get it in your head that you might be able to reverse engineer 
the PBR phenomenon onto or map it onto other brands by understanding yep. the individual components. I mean, that seems like the seems like fool's gold, frankly. But like, it, obviously, there's got to be some innate attraction to try and engineer for it. Yeah. We tried it and our competitors tried it as well. The com- yeah, there's some so, laughable yeah. attempts from the competitors. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. We'll start with the competitors. Yeah, please so, do. <laughs> you know, M- Miller High Life blatantly tried to rip off uh, the, the PBR field marketing rep campaign. Like they literally, I mean, these things get around this book. Sure. Yeah. yeah. Um, you know, like they got a hold of that book and, uh, you know, they hired uh, a big field marketing agency and they probably hired four or five times as many field marketing reps to go out there and push Miller High Life. Yeah. And um, from what I heard, you know, and I guess we saw it in the numbers as well. It just never really worked for whatever reason. I mean, you know, yeah, I, intuitively I can sit here even today and be like, yeah, I don't know why it didn't work. Yeah. You know, you know yeah. I, 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 did, did they try to do it in too much of an inauthentic manner? Did PBR have its, its claws in the hipster community? It's so deep, deep by that time? Yeah, yeah. I don't know. I don't know why it didn't work, but you know, they tried it and then they pulled it and then, they, you know, they, they gave up, you know, we tried it within the four walls of, of Pabst Brewing Company as well. We had Schlitz and there was a guy working on the Schlitz brand and, and, you know, he kind of like created this kitschy campaign around Schlitz. Um, I think we even like reformulated the beer and started brewing it uh, at a, at a different brewery other than Miller and like had some, you know, a big launch. I think his launch was like in Chicago for whatever reason. And uh, that didn't work. Yeah. So it didn't really take. Yeah. I, I don't know. And I, I mean, I think that's part of the the serendipity and, and the, the luck, quite honestly, that's part of this, this whole PBR thing, you know, like sometimes there are just things that consumers do that us marketers, you know, can't really take credit for, mm. you know, I don't, I certainly don't take credit for PBR happening. I'll take some credit for nurturing it and not messing it up and, and, you know, applying some good pressure on some things. But at the end of the day, I think this was a a total consumer led uh, movement. Yeah. Yeah. When you leave PAPS in 2006, uh, where did you go from there? So yeah, new CEO came in and uh, we had this little weird time where the new CEO came in and that guy, Brian Kovalchuk, was supposed to leave when the new CEO came in and then he didn't leave. <laughs> so I was like <laughs> reporting into two CEOs cool, for a while. That's awesome for you. I'm sure oh, that was yeah, so that's great. great. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. I'm surprised I left. Yeah. <laughs> um, so I, I had an interest in craft beer at that time. My wife is from Colorado and I had an opportunity with Flying Dog Brewery, sure, yeah. which was then based in Denver. And uh, so the choice literally was move to Chicago with Pabst or move to Denver and get into the craft beer business. And uh, yeah, so we chose to move to Colorado. Yeah, easy choice there. Yeah. As for PBR, it would go on to have a real successful run, I think, through the end of the decade and, you know, maybe into the following decade to some extent. We talked, listener, with uh, Steve Sticks Nilsson um, about sort of the period after Neil was at PBR and sort of how their job at the time was really to make sure they don't step on this thing that's happening and figure out ways to, to you know, usher it into broader growth without, you know, making it feel too corporate, making it feel too intentional. PBR, you know, these days has definitely lost some of that cachet and these things go in cycles. 
this is the way this works, right? Like nothing can last forever except for, for some reason, Corona uh, continues to do what Corona has yeah. been doing since the eighties, but no one really knows what's going on there or why that's happening. Um, but, you know, I, I guess like my question, Neil, is when you look back at that period in American sort of beer industry history, and then obviously like in terms of American cultural history with what was going on with hipsterism developing as a milieu, it strikes me as more or less a perfect storm of forces, of, of market forces. I mean, this is also, you got to take into account like the technological landscape at, the, at that point. Social media is in its infancy. There's a much less sort of plugged in consumer than the one that we're current, you know, that we're familiar with in 2023, where they're sniffing out marketing campaigns in a matter of moments instead of, you know, things being allowed to live and cycle uh, in the marketplace. The question uh, that I'm slowly but surely getting to, I promise, is, uh, is can, you know, can something like this happen again? Like, do you see it as something that's a natural function of market forces that coalesce from time to time or a unique outcome of those specific forces that because of advances in technology and, and you know, and other, you know, sort of movement and culture, et cetera, et cetera, really could not, you know, happen again. Or a little bit of both, maybe. I don't yeah, know. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. I, I, I think it could happen again. I mean, I, I do think that it the perfect storm does need to happen. Mm. And that perfect storm did happen here. Yeah. Going back to the Lutz Tavern taking Blitz beer off. I love that. And happening to pick PBR, um, you know, there was a guy who worked in the marketing department uh, a little bit before me, a guy named Nick Foppy, who did a, a, a lot of things with like the snowboard community. Mm -hmm. So he was kind of planting some seeds even before uh, I was part of it. You know, uh, the, the the team that worked on the brand after me, I think, did a great job of like much like I did. They didn't mess it up and they probably invested even more in, in it by that that time. And, and I think nurtured it the right way. Um, so I think what it takes is like like that cultural phenomenon, you know, so the, the 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 rise of hipster culture and all of that happening and someone from a marketing standpoint noticing that there's an opportunity and saying, hey, I think our brand can be a part of that. So to me, like, yes, there's there's various different forces that pushed everything into that perfect storm. Yeah. But it, it what what it takes is you use the word earlier. It takes someone with an insight to be like, oh, hey, wait a minute. I think our brand can be a part of this and can capitalize on this opportunity. So therefore, yeah, I think it could happen. Again. Yeah, could happen again. You heard it here first. PBR could happen again. <laughs> if we're depending on <laughs> depending on your thoughts on PBR, maybe that's a warning. Maybe that's a beacon on the horizon. <laughs> but for now, I think that's a good place to leave it. Neil Stewart, thank you so much for joining Taplines to take us down memory lane and uh, and visit those those heady early days uh, when PBR was. Uh, at its quite literally lowest point and started its its climb into a cultural phenomenon to become just a few years later. Thanks so much for coming, Neil. Yeah. Yeah. These memories are ingrained in my my brain. I can't get rid of them. So it's uh, good to release them every once in a well, while. Well, tap line. Tap we serve many purposes here at Taplines. One of them is to uh, have folks on from the beer industry who need to who need to work some shit out. And we're glad <laughs> But this was a very this was a very fun uh, episode, and I know listeners will appreciate you joining. So thanks again so much, Neil. Yeah, thanks a lot. 
Don't forget, Taplines listener, this was part two of our conversation with Neil Stewart. So if you somehow missed part one, go check it out. You'll find it directly behind this one in your feed. Taplines is recorded in Richmond, Virginia, and produced by yours truly and Darby Seaside, who, along with the talented Shane Farrick, composed our delightful soundtrack. Just listen to it. I also want to give a quick shout out to the entire Vine Pair team, and especially co-founders Adam Teeter and Josh Mallon, Editor-in-Chief Joanna Sherino, Managing Editor Tim McCurdy, and Art Director Danielle Grinberg, who designed our lovely Taplines logo. And of course, a big thank you to you, yes you listener, for spending time with us week in and week out. We literally couldn't do this without you. I'm Dave Infante, and I'll catch you next time.